Pushkin. Legacy of Speed is executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. For the final meet of the 1967 season, Bud Winter decided it was time to make a statement. He would take his two best sprinters, Tommy Smith and Lee Evans, and make an attempt at the 400-meter world record. Tommy Smith was tall and lean. He floated over the track with impossibly long strides. Smith begins to pour it on and forges to the front. He literally flies toward the tape. He wore sunglasses when he ran. That way he wouldn't squint, and his face would stay relaxed, just like he was coached to do. Lee Evans was shorter and more muscular, compact, lethal. Lee Evans for America, way in front. They're 30, 40 yards in front. Kenya next. If Smith was ice, Evans was fire. Here's Tommy Smith talking about Lee Evans. Lee was a power runner, a deep power runner, especially on the straightaway. I was a an attacker. I was the pouncing type. I'll pounce upon you in a second. He would go by you grinding. He ran in the ground. I ran on top of the ground. And that was our difference in our running. Bud had other world record holders in his years at San Jose State, other Olympians, but Smith and Evans were the prize. They were Usain Bolt before there was Usain Bolt, except there were two of them. On the same team, trained by the same coach at the same sleepy commuter school. I defy you to name a college team in any sport with as much greatness as there was on that San Jose squad. So, May 22nd, 1967, Smith and Evans head-to-head. The day that uh, it was set for Lee Evans and Tommy Smith to break a world record in the 400 meters, we had people in trees on top of buildings. Tommy, I would have given any amount of money just to be at that track that day when you and Lee Evans uh, are going at it in over 400 meters, that would have been, I I will forever be sad I wasn't there. I would have taken your money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Malcolm Gladwell, and from Pushkin Industries, this is Legacy of Speed, the story behind one of the most iconic photographs of the 20th century. Two black athletes on the victory stand at the Mexico City Olympic Games, fists clenched, arms raised, in silent protest. In this episode, I want to set the stage for that iconic moment. The Olympic Games were in 1968. This episode is about 1967, the year that Bud Winters athletes realize they have no equal and that their athletic prowess gives them power to push for change in the world. But how should they use that power? Do they walk away from center stage, boycott, make a sacrifice heard around the world? Or do they participate and use their time in the spotlight to make a statement? Every reformer, radical, revolutionary in history has struggled with that question. But athletes never had to. Not until Speed City. The story of 1967 begins with the showdown between Tommy Smith and Lee Evans at San Jose State. Years later, Lee Evans looked back on the day he finally went head-to-head with Tommy Smith. Both of us were the alpha male. Alpha male, I'm, gonna, I'm in the front, everybody in the back, you know? I never ran behind anyone in training. Okay, it was hard. And Tommy was the same way, of course. 
The two of them had run against each other just once before, by chance, in practice. Bud told one of his assistants to time the sprinters in three times 300 meters or maybe two. Then Bud went to Coastal Pole Vault or the discus. They didn't know they separate me and Tommy. So, okay, everybody line up. Me and Tommy got together. Next thing you know, we was flying, man. And Bud came running across the middle. Oh, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> oh, but he, he warned that, that assistant coach, oh, no, never let them run together. Bud thought that Smith and Evans, one-on-one, was too combustible. We were both on the same team, so why race each other? <laughs> why? You don't think that you guys would have set more world records or faster world records if you'd raced more often? We probably would have hurt ourselves because Lee doesn't like to lose. I don't like to lose, no matter who I'm racing. In 1967, Tommy Smith was a senior. It would be his last chance to run for San Jose State. Bud decided the time had come. Why deny the running world a race of a lifetime? The distance would be 400 meters, one full circuit of the track. Sports Illustrated, then the Bible of all American sports, sent a reporter. Word spread across California. Lee Evans and Tommy Smith in the same race for win-loss and a possible war record. We had over 5,500 people at that little stadium we had. Every kind of track race is torture in the end. But the 400 is waterboarding. The 400 is someone taking out your fingernails with pliers. It's technically a sprint, but it's not a sprint like the 100 meters or the 200 meters, which are one sustained burst of power and energy. 400 meters is much too long for that. If you break down a typical 400-meter race, the athletes run the first 200 meters faster than the second. The race consists of a standard opening sprint followed by a long, drawn-out, painful decline over the final bend and home stretch. I've watched runners struggle through the final 50 or 60 meters of a 400, and no amount of money could convince me to take their place. So, Evans took the lead right away, leading Smith by three yards. He was still leading down the backstretch, as he always did. He hadn't lost a 400 since he was a junior in high school. And around the bend, still leading. But then, remember what Smith said? I was the pouncing type. I'll pounce up on you in a second. Smith pounced. He kept his knees high and closed in on Evans. The form drills from Coach Bud Winter were on full display down the final stretch. Smith glided past Evans. Never looked back. World record, 44.5 seconds, crushing the existing mark by almost half a second, a lifetime in the sprint world. After the race, Bud told Sports Illustrated, Lee would have won against anybody else. It's just that he ran against somebody who may be superhuman. Now, the runners of Speed City had the world's attention. The question was, what would they do with it? Tommy Smith beat Lee Evans at the end of May, and the summer that followed became known as the Long Hot Summer. In the tumult of the 60s, it was as close as the United States got to social breakdown. 
The civil rights movement had gained momentum with Martin Luther King's carefully staged set pieces in Birmingham and the march from Selma to Montgomery. Orderly, nonviolent, King and his tight-knit group of master strategists planning every step. But as the decade wore on, something snapped. The Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles erupted in a fiery, angry week of rioting that shocked the country. And then... In the long, hot summer of 1967, things got dramatically worse. Race riots erupted in 159 cities across the country. Detroit and Newark, the worst of all. You can still see traces of the destruction if you drive around either of those cities today, nearly half a century later. The country was reeling. The Miami police chief famously declared, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. If you were young and black in the summer of 1967, and even remotely aware of the world around you, this was a traumatic and unsettling time. And the runners of Speed City were no exception. They went to the track every day to train and prepare, but then they went home, and they were part of the world again. In the fall of that year, with the fires across the country still smoldering, Speed City welcomed another extraordinary runner into their fold. Someone who really knew what protest meant, someone who knew how to start a fire, John Carlos. Carlos was lean and tall like Tommy Smith, and he too was one of the fastest men alive. John Carlos, who runs the turn like no one ever has, just speeding away from his opposition here, moving away. John Carlos wasn't a California kid like many on the San Jose State team. He was from Harlem, the center of the country's black intellectual life. His mother was Jamaican, part of the West Indian diaspora in New York City. Here's Carlos. I had the great distinction to be raised between the Cotton Club and the Savoy Ballroom, uh, probably the two most uh, prestigious nightclubs uh, in the world at that particular time. As a kid, Carlos and his friends would entertain people outside the Savoy. The friends would sing and dance. Carlos would collect the tips. One of their fans was a patron named Fred Astaire. What impressed him most is that we always gave a good show for the money. That was something that stayed with me throughout my career as a a public figure in in the world of sports, to uh, make sure that I gave the people a very good show for the money. A standout athlete starting from the time a policeman caught him breaking into freight cars. He said, you have a talent. I have a talent. What, What talent do I have? And he said, you was a runner. Because the police used to chase us from the Bronx over into Holland River houses. They'd catch some of my partners, but they could never catch me. John Carlos would always give the people a good show for the money. He ran with one eye on his competitors and one eye on the crowd. I remember my first competition. Uh, we had gray cotton sweats. And I remember I got a magic marker and I wrote a big J on one of my buttocks and a big C on the other box. My, my partner said, man, what are you doing? I said, man, I'm putting JC on this. So when they see me jogging, they're going to know this name, JC, JC, Johnny Carlos, Johnny Carlos. Coming out of high school, Carlos was recruited by everyone, USC, UCLA, UC Berkeley. He chose East Texas State University, a school an hour from Dallas. Carlos says they promised him a free ride scholarship, a job for his wife, and transportation to and from track meets. Things did not go well. When he arrived in Texas, he saw bathrooms marked colored 
for the first time in his life. And then there was the coach. My name changed from John Carlos to Boy. I had my daughter with me, my wife with me, and he called me Boy. And I'm telling him, I said, Coach, my name is John Carlos. My name ain't Boy. Carlos clashed with his coach from the beginning. He says the promises the school made to him and his family dried up. He later wrote in his memoir, every last shred of dignity that we took with us to Texas was challenged. Carlos lasted a year at East Texas State, then went home to Harlem. It was 1967. Enter San Jose State. Bud Winter had Carlos on his radar as a high school prospect. In a story recounted in the book Something in the Air, Carlos flew to California to meet with Bud and his wife Helen at their home on Cherrydale Drive. Helen offered everyone in the living room something to drink. She suggested iced tea. Carlos asked for Jack Daniels. There was silence, a moment of nervous hesitation. Then Bud laughed and said, give him what he wants. Carlos was coming to Speed City. You want to know how a revolution starts? Take a fire that's been slowly simmering and add a little John Carlos. Recently, I sat down with Tracksmith founder and CEO Matt Taylor to learn more about the brand and why they wanted to tell the story of Speed City through this oral history. I, like you, have been a runner my entire life. I love it. I love the sport. Running is a part of who I am. Um, But I felt like there was so much more that could be done in terms of how the sport is presented and how it makes people feel. And so I started Tracksmith in 2014 to make people fall in love with running. So the, the project, the Bud Winter Speed City project, where did that come from? The image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the podium in Mexico City with their gloved fists raised in the air. It has to be one of the most recognizable photos of our generation. But a photo only captures a moment in time, right? It's like a snapshot with no commentary. And as as powerful as an image that was, as a track and field athlete and a fan of the sport, I always wanted to know more. And so as I got to learn more about that story, there were really two parts that felt extremely compelling to me. One was, how did this tiny school in California produce so many world-class athletes? San Jose State was not an athletics powerhouse, but in the 1968 Olympics, they, they won three gold medals and a bronze, which was amazing. And then two, the legacy of Speed City, its sort of impact on the world as we see it today is not that well known, um, both in terms of athletic performance, but also social justice. More than just incredible products, Tracksmith tells stories and creates experiences that make running more rewarding. This show is just one example. Learn more at tracksmith.com slash legacyofspeed and get 15% off your first purchase. In the fall of 1967, a group called the United Black Students for Action threatened to shut down San Jose's season-opening football game. They had a long list of demands. They were bringing the agenda of the social justice movement to the playing field. And the leader of that group was one of Bud Winter's former athletes, a discus thrower turned activist named Harry Edwards. He'd gone on to do a graduate degree in sociology, then returned to San Jose to teach and stir up trouble. 
Edwards' argument was that sports belonged at the center of any struggle for social change. He refuted the prevailing ideal of amateurism that was based on the idea that sports was a kind of higher holy calling above politics and money. Edwards said, no, sports is politics. We take that idea for granted today. Why wouldn't a famous, wealthy black athlete participate in the public conversation about race? After the death of George Floyd, NBA players by the dozens wore Black Lives Matter or some other similar statement on the back of their jerseys. But in the 1960s, that idea was heresy. And the heretic-in-chief was Harry Edwards. The long, hot summer had just ended, and Edwards was determined to extend it into fall. He forms a group of students. They demand an end to discrimination in student housing, a student body that matched the demographics of California, and fairness in athletic recruitment. There was an uproar, threats of violence. The university president called off the game. California Governor Ronald Reagan criticized the cancellation as appeasement. Edwards called Reagan a petrified pig unfit to govern. Then, later that fall, a reporter surprised Tommy Smith with a question at the World University Games. I'm over in, in, in uh, Tokyo, Japan to uh, run a race, one of the biggest races of my life. A reporter asked me, there has been talk of a black boycott. Is that possible? Will that happen? A boycott, meaning of the Olympic Games. In a matter of weeks, boycotting a single football game at a school where no one particularly cared about football had turned into, what if we boycotted the most important sporting event on the planet? I said, it's possible for anything to happen. What else could I say? The story ran widely in newspapers. Suddenly, Tommy Smith, one of the best athletes in the world, became the face of a nascent Olympic boycott movement. He started receiving hate mail. Yes, I was bombarded with Why'd you do this? Why'd you say what you said? Is is it true? And I held more world records than any man or woman in track and field history at one time. And I want to maintain the pride of athleticism. What am I to do? By this point, Smith had known Harry Edwards for several years. Edwards picked Smith up at the airport when he first landed at San Jose as a freshman about four years earlier. Edwards became Smith's mentor off the track. Smith and his teammate, Lee Evans, started taking Edwards' sociology courses. Then, in October of 1967, Harry Edwards kicked things up a notch. In response to the boycott controversy, he started a second group, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Here's Edwards. The one thing that we will accomplish out of this is something that we've been trying to accomplish for a long time, and that is to get the racial situation out from under the rubric, the jurisdiction, of Uncle Sam and get it into the world arena. Smith and Evans' star power was invaluable. Here's Smith. This is why we worked very hard after the uh, uh, inception of the Olympic Project for Human Rights if certain issues were not heard. And I think this was the first time in the history of athletics that uh, a group of athletes uh, stood together and made a stand. The Olympic Project for Human Rights, or OPHR for short, had a long list of demands. They wanted to see the desegregation of the U.S. Olympic Committee and more black coaches hired. They wanted apartheid-era teams from South Africa and Rhodesia banned. 
They wanted Muhammad Ali's heavyweight title restored, and they wanted the most important person in the Olympic movement, Avery Brundage, gone. They wanted slavery, Avery, out. So the mere fact that they had demands of the International Olympic Committee goes against, for Brundage, one of the core tenets of amateurism, which is basically you shut up and play because you're doing it for the joy of the sport. You know, that's, of course, the word, amateurism, love. That's Dave Zirin, who's written about Brundage. So some of the issues that they were raising in the lead-up to the Olympics um, included things that would have made Avery Brundage's head explode, not the least of which was fire Avery Brundage. They said Avery Brundage was a white supremacist and he should be forced to step down. He does not stand with what we believe the Olympic movement is or should be. Harry Edwards preached that it was necessary to link what was going on in the world and what was going on inside stadiums and arenas. And that idea was completely antithetical to what Brundage had preached his whole life, that the two domains had to be kept separate. For the protesters storming the gates, Brundage had to go. Needless to say, Avery Brundage was not happy with what he was hearing from Speed City. Tommy Smith remembers in the months leading up to the 1968 Olympics, the big question was, Will they or won't they boycott? We had meetings, a plethora of meetings, during the year before. Meeting the athletes or the athletes that were thought to make the Olympic team. We had to beforehand find out how they felt about the issues. Sports Illustrated covered an OPHR meeting that was held on Thanksgiving Day in Los Angeles. It was attended by the heavyweights of the civil rights movement. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Black Panther leader Huey Newton, Lew Alcindor, who would later change his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, came with other members from the unstoppable UCLA basketball team. Tommy Smith and Lee Evans were there too. Evans told Sports Illustrated, I've dreamed about participating in the Olympics ever since I learned to run, but this does not mean participation at any price, and my own manhood is not one of the prices I'm willing to pay. In December 1967, the momentum picked up even more. This boycott has the absolute support of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Martin Luther King gave his official endorsement. Consequently, we're going to stand up and make the sacrifice. And a sacrifice is always necessary to gain that which you seek in a just way. By the end of 1967, there was a real possibility that for the first time ever, the Olympic Games would be held with a long list of the world's greatest athletes sitting at home. And what would the Olympics be without Speed City? A sham. Through all this, Edwards kept a poker face about which direction he felt ultimately made the most sense. Was all this talk of a boycott just a bluff? Was he just seeing how far he could get with an opening threat? Here he is talking to reporters in 1968. I'm saying that we're going to do what is in the interest of black people, whatever it is. As far as we are concerned, the boycott is on. If white people want to believe it, beautiful. If they don't, that's beautiful, too. We'll be right back.
In the early 1970s, the economist Albert O. Hirschman wrote a famous book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty. The book was a reaction to the upheavals of the 1960s, and in it, Hirschman laid out the options he felt were available to those with a grievance. Hirschman's first option was exit. You're unhappy with the public school your children attend? Take them out and enroll them in a private school. A boycott is exit. You punish the offender with your absence. Exit is the most dramatic, the most emphatic of the options available to the unhappy. People notice a boycott. Voice. Voice is where you stay and speak up. You keep your kids in the public school system, but join the school board and express your unhappiness from the inside. Work constructively for reform without abandoning the ship. And then loyalty? Loyalty is where you stay, keep quiet, and hope your commitment pays off in the long run. Loyalty is what African-American athletes had been practicing for years. Few people wanted to continue down that path. The choice that Edwards and the runners of Speed City wrestled with in the months leading up to the games was between exit and voice. It was, let's be clear, an impossible choice. The long, hot summer was still on everyone's mind. Tens of thousands of African Americans had taken to the streets in protest, burned down whole neighborhoods, battled with police. The stakes were high and had been raised even higher. Was it really acceptable for a socially aware, famous athlete to turn down the dramatic option and argue instead for engagement with the status quo? Exit will always be an easier sell to the aggrieved community than voice. On the other hand, every athlete knew what had happened back in 1936. That was the year the Olympics were held in Berlin. Hitler wanted to turn the games into a showcase for his own fascist ideology. The argument for exit was made loud and clear. Why would the United States help Hitler bang his own drum? A vote was held. Stay or go. The proposed boycott failed by a narrow margin. And what happened next? I talked about it with Dave Zirin. Dave, what about 36? You know, there was the sense of whether we should have boycotted that, but then... How do we remember the 36 games? Jesse Owens. Exactly. Jesse Owens, a black man, the son of sharecroppers from Oakville, Alabama, went into the heart of Nazi Germany, a place where Hitler held up the myth of Aryan supremacy and won four gold medals. The 100 meters, the 200 meters, the long jump, and the 4 by 100 meter relay. If America had stayed home, the world would never have heard of Jesse Owens. It would have been Hitler's Olympics. How would that have been better? The average person on the street, the idea that this was this moment of, you know, iconic Nazi, sure, that's part of the general memory of the games, but it's Jesse's games. It's Jesse's games. He stole it from them. thousand percent, he did. In the fall of 1967, people like Tommy Smith and John Carlos knew perfectly well what had happened when Jesse Owens upstaged Adolf Hitler. Why couldn't they do the same? I think that it's interesting that in 1968, the most famous amateur athlete in the world was not Tommy Smith or John Carlos or Wyoming Atias. It was Lou Alcindor, later to be known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And Kareem 
made the decision to not go to the 68 Olympics and to, in effect, boycott them. Now, how many people know that Kareem boycotted the 68 Olympics? Here's one of the most famous basketball players in history, uh, the all-time leading scorer in the NBA. And I think what if Kareem had gone to those 68 Olympics and had raised his fist with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, you know, seeing that man at seven foot two, uh, raising that fist on the medal. Yeah. His fist would have been 11 feet in the air. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And how iconic would that have been? Years later, Harry Edwards would counsel the NFL quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, who chose to take a knee during the 2016 NFL season as part of a protest against racial injustice. Kaepernick didn't quit the NFL in outrage. He stayed in the NFL and used his platform as a star quarterback to argue for change from within. Voice, not exit. For the land, hand of free. Overnight, San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick refusing to stand during the national anthem again. At a key meeting during the Olympic trials that summer, Edwards took a straw poll. He wanted to see who was in and who was out. He thought he needed two-thirds of the athletes to stay home for his statement to be loud and clear. But after a vote, it looked like only half of the black athletes bound for Mexico City supported the boycott. In late August, he backed down. There would be no exit. But that didn't mean the battle was over. It just meant that now they were committed to voice, and they would show the world just how loud their voice could be. So now what? It was decided that each athlete would represent himself according to how he felt the country represented them. And when they did, the whole world would be watching. That's coming up in our next episode. Legacy of Speed is hosted by me, Malcolm Gladwell. It's executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. Our producers are Joel Meyer and Emily Rostek. The show is edited by Trisha Bobita and Karen Shikurji. And our mix engineer is Jake Gorski. Original music composed by Alexis Quadrado with trumpet by Lee Hogans. Fact-checking by Winton St. Clair. Our Pushkin EPs are Catherine Giraudot and Mia Lobel. Our development team is Lital Molod and Justine Lang. We had help with research and archival material from Yurla Hill, Kathy Winter, Tom Ratcliffe, John Stalkup, Brett Lyman, and Carly Lowe. Some audio in this episode was courtesy of the documentary film The Stand, How One Gesture Shook the World. Special thanks to Bud Winter Enterprises and Historic Films Archives. Legacy of Speed is a production of Pushkin Industries. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.